Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for friends of the Hebrew Bible everywhere. I'm Rosie Candethel, a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia Theological Seminary in Hebrew Bible. And I'm Tim McNinch, assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary. Our co-hosts, Dr. Rachel Wren and Paul Essa, are still enjoying the last dregs of their summer breaks, but we are back in the virtual studio after a little FR podcast summer hiatus. We hope you've been enjoying some of these uh, best of back episodes in the meantime. But here we are today, we're in the live studio and we're ready to celebrate another week in ordinary time. This Sunday, August 27th, 2023. The Revised Common Lectionary gives us two options for our readings, as it does throughout Ordinary Time. Rosie, you're you're up on the docket. Which path are you taking us on? (laughs) Well, Tim, as you mentioned, the Revised Common Lectionary gives preachers a couple of choices, and there are two strands of readings throughout Ordinary Time. One strand of readings, as we've talked about before, is complementary to the Gospel readings, and the other strand is semi-continuous and arranged around a theme. In year A, that theme is covenant, and the Revised Common Lectionary runs us through a semi-continuous selection of Hebrew Bible readings from Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy with this theme of covenant in mind. So the idea behind this set of readings is that it lays a foundation for year A's focus on Matthew's gospel and Matthew's particular sense of Jesus as a fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel and the Jewish people. I really like this approach from the Revised Common Lectionary, and so this has been the strand of readings that I've been thinking through this season. And Sunday, August 27th, brings us right into the first chapter of Exodus with the stories around Moses' birth. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through chapter 2, verse 10, is a longish read from the lectern, clocking in at just 24 verses. But it's got so much drama that I don't think folks in the pews will feel the time go by. Hmm. Yeah, the semi-continuous readings take us through the book of Genesis, right? So the idea is that the congregation will probably be able to recall some of the background that brings us into that first chapter in Exodus. Um, But just for the sake of the podcast, how about giving our listeners a quick refresh before uh, jumping into the beginning of Exodus? Yeah, that's that's perfect. As you just rightly said, Tim, the semi-continuous readings take us quickly through Genesis with their stories of the divine promises that were made to Sarah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Promises for uh, dis- descendants, for land, and for blessing. The book of Exodus opens by quickly reminding its audience that all those ancestors have now died including Joseph and all his brothers, along with much of their memories. Hmm. So their descendants, though, the Israelites, remain in Egypt. And as Exodus begins, they are in great shape, fruitful, numerous, strong, and filling the land. So we get this hopeful suggestion in the opening language of Exodus that the divine promises heard throughout the book of Genesis are being fulfilled, but maybe only partially and rather slowly. So we've got descendants described here, but that divine promise of land still remains glaringly unfilled. And without land, the divine promise of blessing for this people still feels rather abstract. The Israelites are living on borrowed time in the land of Egypt, dependent on an empire that by the opening verse of our reading, that's verse 8 of Exodus 1, this land has already forgotten Joseph and his service to Pharaoh and his people. 
A new king has ascended, and with his new reign, a new policy toward the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that sets us up really nicely for what's about to happen in the story. Most of our listeners will probably be familiar with the bare bones of the next verses in Exodus. The new Egyptian pharaoh is less than delighted with the growth and strength of the Israelites and sets out to do something about it. Yeah, that's right. So verses 9 through 14, as the reading continues, details a strategy to suppress and oppress a group that might, in the words of Pharaoh, one day rise up and join their enemies. So the Israelites are made into a slave class, forced into labor and abused. But despite that oppression, the Israelites multiply and spread. They persist. And here's where I really want to draw listeners, because the Israelites find unlikely allies in their efforts to survive. All right. I love the story. Let's hear it. <laughs> Let me just preface this by saying that my little post-colonial feminist scholarly heart absolutely delighted in this <laughs> passage this week. First, for the sheer number of women with major chops that are cited in this Sunday's reading, there are five women mm. here um, named, right? And the details with which their roles are described is, is pretty extraordinary. We get a glimpse as we read between the lines of the kinds of agencies and power that women of different ethnicities and classes exercised in the world of Exodus. Secondly, there's a lot here to see about the complex power negotiations and subversive collaborations among the so-called rulers and ruled. They're not quite opposites in this text. When we read between the lines, we can get a sense of something quite wonderful and subversive and ironic going on underneath. Uh, the surface. Mm -hmm. I imagine you're going to want to start with the fact that in the world of Exodus 1, the names of the two midwives that Pharaoh tries to enlist to kill off the Hebrews, Shifra and Puah, are recorded, while turns out the Pharaoh's name is absent. He's just a general tyrant. Right. And that's certainly an important point to make, right? So our unidentified Pharaoh calls upon Shifra and Puah by names that remain available to us, preserved in time in the scripture. Because it went against social codes for a male to even be present during labor, midwifery was one of the few professional occupations with genuine prestige that was open to women. And these midwives seem as though they were well-known and respected for their skill. We have to remember that women's medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, they're extraordinarily recent medical specialties. And just as today, experienced, skilled midwives were revered in the ancient world. Midwives often apprenticed other young women, passing on their wisdom, experience, and medical skill so that communities would not be without. As I was prepping this passage, I was reminded of the PBS program called The Midwives. Hmm. Tim, I'm not sure if we've talked about this show before. <laughs> have we? I don't know that we have. And to confess, I have never seen it. Are you serious? Okay. Yeah. Well, yep. then this it's is one a of the plug. ones I haven't gotten to. This is definitely a plug. Okay. So, <laughs> listeners, if you're thinking about preaching this Exodus reading uh, and and him, I highly recommend watching an episode <laughs> or two of Call the Midwife because it brings to life the intimate bond of service and gratitude that's formed between midwives, mothers, children, and their communities. And it is probable that Shifra and Pua were at the head of a guild of midwives recognized and called upon for help by women and their families in an hour of extreme need. Although we don't know really whether um, Shifra and Pua were Egyptian or Hebrew themselves, their names are Semitic and they mean beautiful and fragrant flower respectively. 
These midwives are described twice in the text as women who feared God, that's Elohim in verses 17 and 21, and they were heroes in this text. They are willing to risk disobeying Pharaoh's order to protect the lives of the Hebrew women and children that they served. Even when confronted by Pharaoh, they mislead him, but in a really clever way, by mm -hmm. feeding into his racialized fears and stereotypes that the Hebrew women were just more fertile, hardier, and quicker at labor and birthing than the Egyptian women. The midwives just couldn't help it, they tell Pharaoh, if the Hebrew women have already given birth before they can get there. Although they risk punishment, they don't bow to Pharaoh's wishes. And it seems from verses 20 to 21 that they're rewarded by God for their faithful service uh, with, with households of their own. That's right. The NRSV certainly renders verse 21 with a happy ending. And I sort of hate to trouble the waters, but the Hebrew is less clear. The subject mm. of the clause at the end of verse 21 is not easy to identify. It reads, and he made houses for them, literally, right? But that dative mm -hmm. lehem for them is masculine. And the he in that phrase could either refer to God, who's referred to earlier in the sentence, or it could be Pharaoh, who in the next clause commands all his people to drown every newborn Hebrew boy in the Nile while letting the girls live. And if we read Pharaoh as the subject of that clause alongside the masculine form of for them, then it's very possible that the midwives were brought under state control. And the verse would read, and he referring to Pharaoh, built them into houses. Now, this is in fact the way that rabbis uh, Rashbam, Tur, and Malbim from the 11th century, 13th century, and 19th century on interpreted the verse as Pharaoh's retaliation against the independence of these midwives. I've actually never thought about it that way. That, that gives a more ambiguous ending for our midwives. Right. I thought that too. And I thought it was worth pointing out for our listeners. Uh, perhaps the Hebrew in some way reminds us that civil disobedience doesn't always result in reward. And in this case, Pharaoh knows that he will not be able to bully the midwives. So he changes tactics. He maybe brings them under state control, but he also then escalates. He, his order to kill is meant now to cut off only Hebrew male descendants, but assumes that Hebrew girls presented no threat. So Hebrew girls could be controlled, at least by Pharaoh's thinking, raised mm -hmm. for sexual exploitation. But the joke here in the text is that it's the women in this story, both Hebrew and Egyptian, that will ensure Pharaoh's undoing. At the start of Exodus 2, with a genocidal order in effect, there's a Hebrew boy that's born, unnamed at this point. His mother, also an unnamed Levite woman, sees that he was good or tov. And this also kind of reflects back to the creation story where God also saw good or tov in the creation account of Genesis 1, a divine refrain that gets repeated seven times in that passage. Mm. The NRSV renders it with, she saw that he was a fine baby, which, <laughs> you know, makes some sense in the context, but makes that connection in Genesis 1 invisible to someone who's only reading the English translation. Seeing the beauty of her son, the goodness of her baby, she wants to protect him. And she manages to hide her baby for three months. But then finally, she puts him in a basket, a teva. The same Hebrew word that's used for the ark that saves Noah and his family in the flood narratives. Before placing that teva, that basket, carefully among the reeds by the banks of the Nile. That's really fascinating that you're pulling on those connections to Genesis. It just makes me think about that term tov as 
maybe a, uh, an indication of potential, like mm -hmm. the, the good potential. Just as, you know, the creator looks at the creation and says, this is Tov, like there's a lot that can be done with this. And, you know, as, as Moses' mother sees him and says he's Tov, there's, there's a potential for what God can mm. do through this individual. Mm -hmm. This is great that you're pointing us to those sorts of Hebrew things. The, the allusion to the creation account, as well as the flood narrative, like you said, point us as readers toward a new beginning. We're expecting something big in the birth of this yet, uh, as yet unnamed boy. I think that's right, Tim. I think there's suspense and drama that's embedded in the structure of this reading. And it continues, right? So from a distance, we watch with the boy's unnamed sister to see what will happen in verse four. And what happens next is more than fortuitous. And I'm going to suggest that this mother and sister have given careful thought to where they're going to place this baby in a basket. And uh, here's some of the background here that I've been thinking through. Mm -hmm. An Egyptian royal princess would not be caught dead bathing in public mm -hmm. in the crocodile-infested waters of the Nile, right? So the image the narrator is painting for us in verse 5 of Pharaoh's daughter coming down to bathe with her maidens walking along the banks is meant to evoke one of the more private, smaller runoffs from the Nile, where she could probably bathe away from prying eyes, meaning that the mother and sister of this Hebrew baby boy probably knew that this spot was only frequented by women, and particularly by this princess. So I don't think that this was an accident. These two smart, resourceful Hebrew women planned to place the baby boy in a relatively safe place, where he'd probably have the best chance of being found and protected by women who were somewhat known to them, perhaps by reputation, even maybe by direct observation, to be sympathetic, maybe even kind to the cause of the Hebrews. While nothing was guaranteed, these Hebrew women had probably done some homework. Contrary to the idea that maybe slaves and masters were on entirely opposite sides, Egyptians versus Israelites, it shows in this story there might be some porosity to the boundaries between ruled and rulers. Mm. In such close quarters, the Hebrews knew that there were some Egyptians that were not in agreement with Pharaoh's policy toward the Hebrews. When this princess sees a basket caught among the reeds, she doesn't ignore it. She sends a slave girl to retrieve it, and discovering a crying infant, she knows immediately that he is a Hebrew boy and feels compassion. It's no chance that the boy's sister is on hand immediately to ask the princess if she needs a Hebrew wet nurse. I can well imagine that the princess immediately realized the young Hebrew girl who suddenly appeared was related to the baby somehow, and then she makes a decision to help. Like he, go, says the princess. And Batalek, off the sister goes, only to return with her mother in tow. Is it too much to hear the echo of the Lech Lecha of God to Abraham in both Genesis 12 and 22 in the princess's command to go forth? Now, I might be stretching the Hebrew, but it's the <laughs> collaboration, the deliberate decision to help and protect, the coordinated effort between this princess uh, and her female slaves, which are also here, a Hebrew mother and her daughter, that put this connection between the passages into my mind. Like Abraham and Sarah, these women do not know where their collaboration will lead either. Nonetheless, these women agree to go to Lekhi and then Vatalech and bring up this unknown Hebrew boy between two households, Hebrew and Egyptian, not yet knowing where the road will lead. That's a really fantastic analysis, Rosie. I, um, I find myself, perhaps by by gut instinct, 
zeroing in on um, Moses himself mm. and the the role, the sort of divine hand, um, somewhat uh, perhaps masculinely uh, uh, figured in my imagination. And yet you're helping me to uh, reread this text through that particularly feminist and postcolonial lens and to see how the agency of the women in the story are really what drive the plot along, even if there is some reading between the lines, which is, of course, fair game. So that, that's, that's really helpful. And, and uh, thank you for bringing that out. I think in your analysis, I think I hear you headed there towards uh, a preaching angle. So uh, let's go there. How would you approach the task of preaching from Exodus 1 to 2? Yeah, I feel like I've been kind of, I appreciate just you going along on this journey with me where I'm imagining this kind of post-colonial feminist lens onto the text, but I would urge preachers to consider the not-so-hidden heroes in this story and the many women across boundaries who made the early life of Moses possible. I think it's really something to celebrate that the book of Exodus begins in this way. I mean, Tim, you kind of talked about the masculine kind of um, sense of both Moses and the hand of God. But here we have in the beginning of this text, something a little bit subversive in the introduction of so many women in such kind of high profile roles before mm -hmm. Moses is ever really on the scene. So in prepping for this episode, I found myself reflecting on my own life and the kinds of collaboration that made it possible. So I thought of my parents born in India and coming to the US as immigrants, the many people that helped them along the way to raise their family. I thought of my own three-year-old daughter now and the team of women that cared for me throughout my pregnancy, the obstetricians, the nurses, the anesthetician, the surgical team of women that rushed in when it became clear that I would need an emergency C-section. And I look at my daughter and I think about how good, how tobe she is. I imagine myself in the place of the creator there with that words, with the words of, uh, of the goodness of seeing her. And I imagine Moses' mother and sister trying to figure out a way to keep their family together and alive. And there's so much available, I think, here in this passage for a preacher who would allow themselves to enter into the richness of this narrative for their congregations. I don't know. That's where I kind of am with this passage. What about you, Tim? Anything you want to maybe lift up for listeners? Yeah, I, I, I'm right along there with you, Rosie. And, and I continue to think along the lines of the... Um, feminist angle on this text and, and, um, you know, the, the divine, like I'm thinking theologically about this, the divine in the, in the passage is linguistically gendered male. And yet the agent, the divine agency present in this comes through the agency of this group of women, which in a way you could, you could characterize the divine agency, therefore in this passage in a kind of feminist frame. And I, that's probably worth reflecting on in a sermon uh, of the ways that we tend to characterize God in terms of um, masculine-oriented power. And yet uh, there's something uh, feminine and subversive and rich in seeing the divine agency in this story coming from a, a femininity within the divine. And that'd be worth reflecting on in a sermon, I think. Hmm. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. This is this is really helpful, and uh, I've I've learned a lot by being here with you, Rosie. Hey. Thanks so much for all of the work that you've done on this. Very welcome. 
Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode. First reading is produced by me, Rosie, Dr. Rachel Wren, and Paul Essa. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are over at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources. And now, your very own First Reading swag on the merch page. (laughs) If you're on Facebook, you can also find us there, and we'd love to interact with you in the comments. A special thank you to those of you who generously choose to donate, which helps keep First Reading sustainable. Thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Candipal. And I'm Tim McNinch, assistant of Shibiliburber. <laughs> of course. And I'm Tim McNinch, assistant professor of... Uh, why am I having trouble reading? <laughs>